Hello, everyone, and welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is season three, episode two for Intro African American Studies concerning the two Harlem Renaissances. Hello, I hope everyone's doing well today. We have a bit of I have a bit of a hodgepodge podcast for you this evening, talking about uh, what I'm calling these two Harlem Renaissances. Before we dive in to that topic, uh, I first want to give an update on the COVID pandemic last week. Well, for last week's podcast, the numbers I gave were 216,000 total cases in the United States with, with 5,000 deaths. Today, uh, numbers stand at 434,000 total cases with close to 15,000 deaths. So double the amount of cases and almost triple the deaths since last week. Um, also to update on some of my comments from last week's podcast, African Americans, it is, it is starting to become very clear are being hit, uh, harder than other groups in the United States by this disease for a variety of reasons. Um, we talked about that a little bit last week. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about why that is this case, especially from a socioeconomic perspective rather than, than, than this of health disparities, even though the two are linked. But, but right now, as it stands, African-Americans are being, uh, the data is showing that, that, that they are being hit much harder. Um, higher rates of cases and higher death rates in Louisiana, for example, 70%. Last time I checked, 70% of all COVID-related deaths were African-Americans, even though African-Americans make up less than, uh, well, about 32% of the state population of Louisiana. And so this is um, a trend that I'm very much paying attention to. Um, it is one that that maybe I should have seen coming a little bit sooner than this, but nevertheless, it is playing out that that uh, African Americans are being disproportionately affected by COVID-19. Uh, first, I want to thank all the frontline workers, medical workers. I want to thank all of our logistical workers, all of our essential workers. And I want to have a moment of silence for all the lives that we've lost so far. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to be referring to three different readings for today's podcast. The only one that I want you to read is the journal article by Lily Hoffman about the marketing of diversity in the inner city. Uh, This has been a very um, influential article for me in terms of my research, and it really does a good job of of talking about the external factors that led that lead to what I'm calling in this podcast the Second Harlem Renaissance. But if we want to understand what the Second Harlem Renaissance is, we first need to understand what the first one is, and this is the most famous of the two. When we think about the Second Harlem Renaissance, uh, uh, the the word that is now coming to people's minds, we think about this as gentrification and how economic prosperity has threatened the black presence in in the community of Harlem really for the first time in a hundred years. And so Harlem first becomes a black community in the 1920s uh, or a couple years before that. And our textbook um, talks about the Harlem Renaissance, mostly in the context of black aesthetics and the political nature of black aesthetics. And so when we think about the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, yes, Think about the jazz, think about the poetry, think about the plays 
think about the novels, think about all this artistic output, but also think about the message of this artistic output. It was a message of resistance. It was a message of, of humanity in the face of a dehumanizing wider society. And so there's this political edge to a lot of the art in the Harlem Renaissance. And I want us to think of the Harlem Renaissance, not as just a center of black artistic production, but also as very much a center and source of black political activism. So our authors give four reasons for why Harlem becomes really a center of the black world in the 1920s. Uh, and they say without here on page two, 328, here they say without regard to rank and weight or significance, they could be listed as one, the mass migration, urbanization, and industrialization of, uh, industrialization of blacks following World War I. Two, the considerable increase in the number of black graduates from black colleges in the South and North. Three, the influence of Marcus Garvey in the development of black racial pride and awareness. And four, the attraction of white tourists, patrons, scholar writers, and publishers to the to the activities of Harlem. And so just a couple notes on, on these four contributing factors. In terms of mass migration, uh, I, I want to point out that Harlem was already a black community at the time of the great migration of African-Americans from areas of the South to Northern cities. And Harlem was first settled by blacks who had already been living in New York uh, during the, the 19th century. For example, New York already had a quite sizable black population, one of the largest black populations in the North before Harlem becomes consolidated as a black community. Harlem was originally constructed as one of downtown Manhattan's first suburbs for wealthy whites. And so you have William Waldorf Astoria designing and building apartment buildings. Um, these very nice brownstone housing houses that we associate with Harlem were built during this time. Harlem becomes black because of overspeculation in the housing market at the time. There is a financial crisis um, investors pulled out of new construction, making buildings cheaper and easier to purchase and easier to rent out. There was also the construction of a subway line between lower Manhattan, where most of the work was at the time, and factories, um, that sort of thing down at the docks. And then, and then to Harlem, which is, of course, located in upper Manhattan, if we think of, of Manhattan Island as going from the south, which is lower Manhattan, where Wall Street is, for example, in the World Trade Center. Um, if we go north, we continue and we hit Chinatown, uh, Lower East Side. We keep going north. We hit Midtown. This is where the Empire State Building is. Then we hit Times Square. And then we hit Central Park. Harlem is all the way up there above Central Park, starting at about 110th Street. If we go by uh, referencing the famous song from the 70s. And so that subway line really made it a lot easier for African-Americans who, say, didn't have a horse and buggy, which was the main way people still got around in the early 1900s or uh, even even less a car at the time. And so cheap housing plus um, public transportation, fast, efficient public transportation leads to this movement. Also, black communities were being evicted in other areas of Manhattan to make way for larger development projects. For example, Central Park, parts of Central Park used to sit on top of a traditional African-American community in New York City, also Madison Square Garden, 
used to occupy where, where an African community, American community was located. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange and Wall Street is another one. Penn Station is another one. And so African-Americans move up to Harlem, who had already been living in New York, and, and that sets the stage for when African-Americans start coming from areas of the South, from outside New York. There's already a large and pretty well-consolidated African-American community in Upper Manhattan at the time. If we think about the considerable increase in the number of Black graduates from Black colleges in the South, and here we have this, this, this melding of... of learning artistic traditions and and being around other African-Americans in this community um, leads to this melting pot, if you want to use uh, a term famous in that day of, of ideas, both artistic and, and activist-oriented, too, as a way of asserting oneself once again in the face of this very dehumanizing, very discriminatory society, Harlem becomes a Black community, let's not forget this, because of racism because of individual racism and because of structural racism. And so this becomes Harlem's response to these conditions. And, and education plays a role in, in, in helping this along. Three, the influence of Marcus Garvey in the development of black racial pride and awareness. Here we have someone who's not Booker T. Washington, right? Uh, someone who's not advocating for assimilation, someone who's not advocating to pick up that bucket. Um, Marcus Garvey is advocating for blacks to be separate, to have their own society, to create a society within a society. And this has a lot of appeal to African-Americans living in Jim Crow conditions, especially in urban cities where the black marketplace was able to grow as a result of a population density in these areas. And for, and, and this is a very important one, I'm really glad the authors mentioned this, the, the attraction of white tourists, patrons, scholar writers, and publishers to the activities of Harlem. Uh, I think we all know who Langston Hughes is, but it's quite possible that we might not know all of us who Langston Hughes was if uh, a white guy named uh, Carl Van Vechten hadn't introduced Langston Hughes to a, a publisher named Alfred Knopf, who, who, who is the namesake of one of the world's largest publishing companies today. And so in a wider sense, the Harlem Renaissance, we've talked about this a little bit when we talked about black music in class earlier this semester, the Harlem Renaissance becomes, becomes this moment when black culture becomes pop culture, when, when, when it starts to become widely accepted by whites um, in many ways. And so this is where we have this famous nightlife associated with the Harlem Renaissance. Duke Ellington, for example, playing nightly concerts at the Cotton Club. We have the Savoy which was uh, famously integrated while the Cotton Club was not, was segregated and modeled after, of course, an old Southern plantation. And, and so this becomes sort of the, the, the cultural and historical milieu that, that we associate with the Harlem Renaissance. And of course, it's, 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 a, it's considered a rebirth in many ways of the, the glory of these ancient African civilizations that we've talked about in class. The reclaiming of black pride in that sense becomes a major theme of the Harlem Renaissance, but also the, the exporting and the popularity globally and, and the spread of, of black culture globally to, to, uh, um, to white audiences around the world as well. So in other words, tourism becomes a major theme 
uh, outsider tourism becomes a major theme of the Harlem Renaissance and, and of the reasons it became such a popular and such a historically uh, memorable and influential period. And, and that didn't last, right? The Harlem Renaissance itself did not last. And in fact, tourism was popular in the 1920s in Harlem. And then it was not popular again, really, until starting in maybe the mid-1990s on into the early 2000s. And so what happens in the middle here? And, and this is where the story of Harlem becomes very, very similar to the story of all major U.S. cities, especially in the North, the story of the, the Black Ghetto, the story of inner city poverty, of, of rising crime in these inner city areas, this, this hopelessness associated. And we could think a lot about Chiron's character here in Moonlight and Chiron's world in Moonlight as being very indicative of, of this idea. And so what happens to Harlem? Harlem is always a poor community of, 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 of um, mostly poor blacks. There was an upper crust society that developed um, in, in Harlem and they, they like to go live on Sugar Hill where the living was sweet. But for the most part, it was always a poor community, but things get even worse. And it becomes hard just to to live in the community. You used to be able to live, right? But now you couldn't do that anymore. And this leads to higher crime rates um, and the sense of this hopelessness and, and this, this urban desolation that we associate these classic movies about um, black ghettos like New Jack City, which I was going to show in class. But we're taking a different approach. And so I want to I want to actually read a story um, from a book called A Brief History of Neoliberalism by David Harvey. And once again, I want us to think about in terms of what happened to Harlem, right? This is a common story that happened to America, uh, all major American cities in the middle parts of the 20th century. And so what are the external factors, right? We see larger macro level changes in global economic systems, for example. And David Harvey does a good job of explaining how this leads to Harlem's decline as a community in the middle parts, moving into the later parts of the 20th century. So please bear with me as I read some of David Harvey's words here. I think he tells this story much better than I do. And so following World War II, capitalist restructuring and deindustrialization had for several years been eroding the economic base of New York and rapid suburbanization, right? Uh, mostly whites are leaving uh, the inner city areas and moving out to these Levitt towns and these new suburbs had left much of the central city impoverished. Blacks were not allowed to move into these suburbs. The result was explosive social unrest on the part of marginalized populations during the 1960s. Here we could talk about these race riots that occurred in Harlem was the center of many of these race riots, really starting in 1935, um, a very, a very significant riot, which is one of the symbolic ends of the Harlem Renaissance, this this unrest, and, and a lot of this unrest was about people dying, like Malcolm X, for example, who was killed in Harlem. Um, there were riots after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Harlem after JFK was, I don't know if, about JFK. The expansion of public employment and public revision facilitated in part by generous federal funding, a social safety net provided by the government was seen as the solution. But faced with fiscal difficulties, President Nixon simply declared the urban crisis over in the early 1970s. 
So while this was news to many city dwellers who still saw a crisis unfolding around them, it signaled diminished federal aid, so we are decreasing this social safety net. As the recession gathered pace, the gap between revenues and outlays in the New York City budget, already large because of uh, borrowing practices, increased. At first, financial institutions were prepared to bridge the gap, but in 1975, a powerful cabal of investment bankers led by Walter Riston of Citibank, refused to roll over the debt and push the city into technical bankruptcy. The bailout that followed entailed the construction of new institutions that took over the management of the city budget. So in other words, the banks right now control the management of the city budget. And if you could control the purse strings, you, you have much of the power in that relationship, it would seem. The effect was to curb the aspirations of the city's powerful municipal unions, which protected public worker pay, for example, so you could have enough money to live in New York. To implement wage freezes and cutbacks in public employment and social provisions, once again, squeezing the, safe, the safety net, and to impose user fees. The final indignity was the requirement that municipal unions should invest their pension funds in city bonds. Unions then either moderated their demands or faced the prospect of losing their pension funds through city bankruptcy. Big point, this amounted to a coup by the financial institutions against the democratically elected government of New York City. And it was every bit as effective as a military coup that had occurred earlier in Chile. He's trying to draw global connections here. Within a few years, many of the historic achievements of working class New York were undone. Much of the social infrastructure of the city was diminished and the physical infrastructure, for example, the subway system deteriorated markedly for lack of investment or even maintenance. Daily life in New York became grueling and the civic atmosphere turned mean. I don't know if you've seen um, the recent movie, The Joker with Joaquin Phoenix, he won best Oscar, but this is sort of the New York that David Harvey is describing here. Demoralized working class New Yorkers reluctantly ascended to the new realities. New York for the bankers, meanwhile, became an epicenter of postmodern cultural and intellectual experimentation. The bankers were free, in other words, to remake New York in their image, which is why New York has, has remained this major financial uh, powerhouse in the, the global economy. Meanwhile, and this is where we really get to talking about Harlem here. Working class and ethnic immigrant New York was thrust back into the shadows to be ravaged by racism and a crack cocaine epidemic of epic proportions in the 1980s that left many young people either dead, incarcerated, or homeless, only to be bludgeoned again by the AIDS epidemic that carried over into the 1990s. Redistribution through criminal violence became one of the few serious options for the poor and the authorities responded by criminalizing whole communities of impoverished and marginalized populations. The victims were blamed. And Giuliani was to claim fame by taking revenge on behalf of an increasingly, that's Rudy Giuliani, by the way, was to claim fame by taking revenge on behalf of an increasingly affluent Manhattan bourgeoisie, tired of having to confront the effects of such devastation on their own doorsteps which leads to policies such as stop and frisk and, and, and what we've talked about a little bit in class, like the new Jim Crow. So by 1990, 
New York City and and specifically black areas such as Harlem and and Bed Stuy out in Brooklyn um, had some of the highest murder rates in the country and and in in the industrialized world and it was not a place where you would want to go and tourists were told not to go there and what happened right during the worst during the worst years of this crisis. Uh, buildings were being sold. The city of New York were, were, were selling buildings in Harlem for a dollar a piece at one point. And now those same buildings are worth millions and millions of dollars in uh, a resurgent real estate market in this area of upper Manhattan. And so what happened here? What happened in the 1990s that sparks this newfound economic prosperity, which to be sure the community itself is more prosperous but it is also less African-American than it has been at any point since before the 1920s. So it's, it's getting harder and harder for a long time African-American residents to live in the community and take advantage of this newfound prosperity. Our reading here by Lily Hoffman kind of gives us, uh, kind of gives us a deeper dive into the genesis of what I'm calling here, the second Harlem Renaissance. And, and one of the reasons for this second Harlem Renaissance is, as Hoffman discusses here, is tourism development and the growth of tourism in the community. And this is one of the big um, big points in my research is, is what role does tourism have in, in acting as a role, as an agent of gentrification? What role does cultural tourism have in, um, even though it focuses on blackness in Harlem, also paves the way for Harlem to become a non-black space through gentrification? So we're going to be talking about that article here. I just want to bring up a few things about it. Uh, uh, Lily Hoffman here talks about what she calls a Fordist versus a post-Fordist economy. We can really think about this as industrial or post-industrial, or alternately, we could think about this as sort of liberal capitalism versus neoliberal capitalism, whichever way you want to think about it. Um, Post-Fordism is going to be much more of a, sort of an, an urban studies kind of term, it seems. Hoffman writes here that demand by foreign visitors stimulated tourism to Harlem beginning in the late 1980s, and this would be from Europeans interested in going to see sort of an exotic, uh, uh, almost like uh, a poverty uh, tourism in many ways. Um, of course, poverty tourism is this phenomenon where you can go into a slum in India and take a guided tour, or slum in Rio de Janeiro, and take a guided tour um, a lot of foreign visitors wanted to come see the old jazz sites, for example. Although they came to new to see New York City, many had Harlem on their itinerary, and the Harlem tour was paid for and organized abroad. And so as visitors start coming into Harlem to experience this cultural heritage, and this is really where the first Harlem Renaissance plays such an important role, Harlem is unique among a lot of these African-American inner city communities because it's got this this very famous cultural heritage in the Harlem Renaissance to draw from. Um, over by 2000, over uh, 800 people, over 800,000 people were coming into the community annually. And so the idea becomes, well, what if their money started becoming part of Harlem's economic output? For example, why can't we get these visitors to start spending even more and more money in in the community. For visitors, Harlem represented Black America and its music and entertainment traditions, i.e. Uh, going back to the Harlem Renaissance, but also thinking about the Apollo Theater, which is in Harlem, 
Um, this is where James Brown made a name for himself. It's where Michael Jackson made a name for himself. Aretha Franklin, where she made a name for herself. The Temptation, Stevie Wonder. I mean, you name a famous black performer, and they have graced the stage of the Apollo Theater. And so we've got this 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 wellspring of cultural heritage with which we can draw from, and there is already sort of an interest in visitors coming to 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 see and experience this. Yet at the same time, Harlem in uh, up to the mid '90s was uh, uh, very much characteristic of what scholars call a, a ghetto economy. Um, as Hoffman says here, when the poverty rate reaches twenty percent. Economic ghettoization occurs. Most activities associated with a middle-income neighborhood, such as supermarkets or banks or legal and accounting services or doctor's offices, for example, disappear. We are These are replaced by used merchandise outlets, check cashing operations, liquor stores, job training, family services, fast food restaurants, takeout restaurants, the um, pawn shops. The hallmarks of a transfer economy based upon government-funded services and informal activity. In 1996, Harlem had 520,000 residents and was characterized by the small-scale retail and service establishments of a ghetto economy. The net result is an unmet shopping demand with residents making something like 60 to 70% of their purchase elsewhere. And so if we start to get community members to start shopping in the community, along with visitors to start spending money in the community, this will make it better for everyone living in the community. This is the logic behind this idea. But, but as we will see, it has become, it is, it has made it harder for, for African-Americans to live in the community to reap these benefits. In this article, there's quite a bit of discussion about what we call the Upper Manhattan Empowerment Zone or the UMES. And when we think about, you know, these ideas, I was just talking about how can tourism help stimulate economic growth in the community. This is when these ideas become policy put into practice. The UMES was a series of grants, each um, matching $100 million grants, one from the federal government, one from the state of New York government, and one from the city government. Of New York, and these monies were to be spent to improve the community specifically for the purposes of stimulating economic development as kind of a, a stimulus package, uh, if you will. And so, of that money, and, and this, and Harlem was one of six, uh, Bronzeville in Chicago was another one, East Baltimore was another one, um, parts of Oakland were another of these empowerment zones that all got stimulus packages of this sort. This is all during the Clinton administration. They all used, all these different cities used their money in different ways. This is part of the deal. Like, uh, we'll give you the money and then you have freedom with how you use it. This was not a part of earlier federal uh, federal assistance plans. It used to be the federal government would give you money and then they would tell you how it had to be used. This was a different, this was different. And so we end up with six different implementations of, and six different plans for improving these these um, depressed inner city areas, Harlem, by far the UMES by far spent more money on tourism development than any other of these initial empowerment zones over a third, and this is this is just based on my research from from my dissertation and, and other projects. So so uh, UMES 
injected over $100 million into tourism's into Harlem's economy specifically to encourage tourism growth. And, and what this is on a larger level, and, and Lily Hoffman really discusses this quite well here, um, when she talks about how multiculturalism and diversity have recently become a positive demographic characteristic for businesses and tourism, i.e. we want to be associated with racial difference. We want to be associated with that exotic otherness because uh, it's it's adventuresome at the same time. Um, it's also leaning into this notion of diversity that we can all get along, um, appeals to our um, socially liberal sensibilities, if you will. Contributing to this sea change is the move toward niche or targeted production and marketing, an aspect of flexible specialization, which coincides with the saturation of traditional markets, um, heightened global competition, and the search, and this is a key phrase, the search for new economic frontiers. Harlem had been hollowed out. It was empty. There was nothing there. And if there's nothing there, then it becomes, in essence, a new economic frontier where something can be. And if we think about where Harlem's located in the middle of one of the biggest cities and one of the most financially important cities in the world, this becomes a new source of economic growth within the city of New York itself. And this is why we see real estate go from a dollar for a brownstone to $5 million for a brownstone and more in today's market. And it all comes, it all has to do with this marshalling of multiculturalism and diversity as sources of profit, as, as potential sources of economic growth. And this is really where a lot of my research has me heading is in this direction of racial commodification. And I really start started to come around to this notion of racial commodification through reading something like, like this article by Lily Hoffman here. And, and even just walking around Harlem. I've noticed changes in my years of, of research there. Um, the the tour office where Neil's, uh, where Harlem Heritage Tours is, is still located on a block of what I would still call ghetto businesses. There's a shop that does hair and also sells luggage. For example, right next, and you see a lot of these on these sort of ghettoized blocks, like hodgepodge shops, for example. Right down the street, though, there's, there's a block that has a Bank of America and... Uh, McDonald's and so and there's luxury condos right around the block and so the there are still these pockets of old Harlem but they are fewer and farther between so to sort of sum up this podcast about the two Harlem renaissances I want to point out some very significant differences between these two periods the first Harlem renaissance we could think about this this flowering of black culture this this recognition of black culture um this uh, and, and wedded with political activism, Harlem is made into a black space during the Harlem Renaissance. The second Harlem Renaissance is 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 perhaps Harlem's undoing as a black space, and 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 uh, and cultural heritage is playing a role, and and cultural tourism has played a role in opening up Harlem for outsiders, tourists, in the sense become the original explorers or the colonizers in this new economic frontier who later paved the way for actual settlers in the form of gentrifiers, if we want to think of it like that. Uh, I've also read a very scathing critique of the Yumez, Mamadou Chinleyu, writes about the Yumez as, as another form of how the first world exploits the third world. The title of his book is Harlem Ain't Nothing But a Third World Country. 
And so Harlem uh, still depends quite heavily on tourism as a source of, of economic uh, development and economic income. Um, but now I would argue that, that, that cultural tourism in Harlem plays another role. It, 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 it plays this role of, of maintaining claims of Harlem as a black space. And it serves as a reminder to folks living there that Harlem is and, and, and is historically a black space. Um, walking around on these guided tours, and I've seen, you know, I've, I've gone on TripAdvisor reviews, and I've seen sort of a difference in the descriptions of the community and the neighborhood as we go on. And one thing that tour guides always like to do is we're walking through these brownstones, and we're talking, and, and you know, they, they've got the front stoops. And all the tour guides will talk about the importance of stoop culture for black Harlem and how it's really important to be able to hang out on the stoop, be able to catch up with the people that live in your community, your neighbors. This is also where you would meet up with extended family, people from other blocks, for example, a place to see and be seen a very significant part of, of Harlem culture. And we see reviewers on TripAdvisor in the early 2000s still writing about this, still being able to have conversations with Harlem locals. Um, in the last few tours I took, conversations about stoop culture would almost always be punctuated by a white man in a suit walking out of a door, for example, as we're talking about the importance of stoop culture, not even looking at us, just walking down the steps, walking off with his suit and his briefcase. And so even in in my research, I've, I've, I've been able to see the effects of this second Harlem Renaissance to, to the very fabric of Black Harlem. And so it is a complicated situation the, the, the guy I worked with is an Afri a local African-American entrepreneur who has done a lot of good things for the community. Yet at the same time, there are these other, these other complexities, these other external factors that lead to tourism, um, tourism's role as, undoings, as undoing in many ways harmless blackness. And so these are all things that I'm still wrestling with in my research. Thank you for letting me get some of this off of my chest. Um, I really wanted to use the example of Harlem to talk about the experience of inner city blackness um, in, in a more tangible way, really linking it back to Chiron's world and the world of moonlight um, and, and where these communities are heading. Harlem isn't the only black community that's being gentrified. Just go out and see what's going on in Oakland right now, for example. So thank you for bearing with me. Um, please look out for another podcast next week. I'm going to try to get some announcements out tonight. I hope you're all staying safe. I hope you're all doing well. And I will um, keep in touch. And please keep in touch with me. Thank you. Bye-bye.